0: Good morning, everybody. I want to thank Amy and Brian always for bringing Hartman to us. I want to welcome Sarah Labaton, who is the Director of Teaching and Learning at the Shalom Hartman Institute of North America. And uh, Sarah, welcome to our uh, conversation this morning. I want to thank the uh, more than 90 folks from Temple Emanuel are here to learn this morning with Rabbi Gordon Tucker. And mostly, Gordon, we want to thank you. This is a total privilege for Temple Emanuel. This is the first time that we have ever had the privilege of learning Tara with you. And uh, actually there's a, now a hundred, more than 100 on a hundred people on a cold Sunday morning in December, and they are all here to hear you. Gordon Tucker, a deep thank you, all yours.
1: Okay, thank you very much. It's uh, it's wonderful to be with everyone. I just regret I didn't think to, to wear my Red Sox tie, um, but uh, you should know it's hanging in my closet. Um, So uh, this is a big topic. Um, Let me start by saying the 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 British uh, and later American um, philosopher Alfred North Whitehead once said that the safest general characterization of the European philosophical tradition is that it consists of a series of footnotes to Plato. Uh, we're going to look at a ubiquitous problem in any setting of religious ethics, which is can religious law, and now put it in, putting it in our vocabulary, can mitzvah, or commandment, be at odds with what is right and just? And if so, what's the religiously correct way to resolve the contradiction? And in this case, as in so many others, we actually can confirm Whitehead's comment because Plato already raised this question effectively more than two millennia ago. So the first thing we're gonna do, and I'll be putting, I know you have these texts, but I'm gonna put them up on the screen as we look at them. Um, In a moment, we will look at a a short piece from um, the, Platonic dialogue that is known as uh, Euthyphro. That's the name of one of the interlocutors. So let me just give you the the background here. Uh, Euthyphro meets up with Socrates at the Athenian court. Uh, It's where Socrates is about to go on trial for uh, corrupting teaching. Euthyphro for his part is prosecuting his own father. He's prosecuting his father for an extrajudicially jud- causing the death of a worker who was in his employ. That worker had himself killed a fellow worker uh, and his father just took it upon himself to, um, to bring about his, his death without any trial. Um, and Euthyphro is prosecuting his father, his own father for this and Euthyphro's certainty absolute certainty that he is right and just, and what he is doing is right and just, that certainty piques Socrates' interest. And that's the the background to the dialogue that then ensues. So we are going to pick up the dialogue at the point at which uh, the puzzle that I've just referred to is introduced. And it starts, as you'll see innocuously enough, with some observations about actions and effects, uh, as you are about to see. So let me get this up there. Here we are. OK. So here's Socrates actually posing uh, the question right at the beginning. And then we'll, we'll see it a few lines later. He says, now think of this. Is what is holy holy because the gods approve it? Or do they approve it because it's holy? And Euthyphro is a little clueless at this point, says, I don't get your meaning. Well, he says, I'll try to make it clearer. We speak of what is carried and the carrier of lead and leader of the seen and that which sees. You understand that in all such cases, the things are different and how they differ. Well, yes, I think I understand. In the same way, what is loved is one thing and what loves is another. And is not that which is beloved distinct from that which loves? Well, of course. So now tell me, is what is carried carried because something carries it or is it for some other reason? I know that can that language can kind of spin your head around a little bit because of the repetition, but just think of it. When something is carried, is is it because someone is carrying it or is there some other reason? No, but for that reason, the only reason it's carried is because someone is carrying it. And what is led is led because someone leads it. And what is seen is seen because someone sees it. Yes, certainly. Then the same is true here as in previous cases. It is not because a thing is loved that they who love, love it. It's loved because they love it, necessarily. Now, what are we to say about the holy Euthyphro? According to your argument, is it not loved by all the gods? Yes. Because it's holy? Or for some other reason? No, 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 it's it's for that reason. And so it is because it is holy that it is loved. It's not holy because it is loved. So it seems. And some trend, there are different translations from the Greek, obviously, and some of them say pious rather than holy, but all of them are getting at the same thing. Is it loved because it's good and just? Or is it good and just because it's loved by the gods? Uh, And that is the. The classic expression um, of this uh, of this question and this what some people have called a dilemma, but I would call it more of a puzzle. Um, and and since this kind of reversal of what causes something else, and we usually think of causes as uh, some action causes something else. You know, hitting the cue ball causes the other balls on the billiards table to to move in certain ways, but We don't always think of it as, think of causation as a condition, you know, being the the cause of some other condition. So let me just go off on a very slight tangent here as as a way of helping out our thinking on this. Uh, We often talk in the Jewish community, as we should, about righteous Gentiles. Unfortunately, nowadays, and particularly in the wake of the Shoah, the classical meaning of that term has shifted in what I think is a very perceptible way. That is, we often equate today the righteousness of Gentiles with their involvement in saving Jews. But given that the category of righteous Gentile was articulated in our tradition back in the early rabbinic period, nearly 1800 years before the Shoah, we might well ask a very Platonic, a a question in Plato's mode, Are certain men and women righteous because they save Jews? Or rather, did they save Jews because they are righteous? And I think the answer in line with our tradition needs to be the second, right? They save Jews because they're righteous. And and you have to see the import of this. It means that there is a standard of righteousness that's entirely independent of how we are affected by it and how we feel about it. In other words, it's perfectly coherent Jewishly to refer to a morally upstanding Aborigine halfway around the world who has never met a Jew and certainly never saved one, to refer to them, a person like that, as a righteous Gentile. And perhaps considering this reversal from righteous because of saving Jews to saving Jews because righteous, Maybe that will further underscore this momentous question that Plato has articulated here. It's a question that also turns on a similar kind of reversal of causal direction. Do the gods love it because it is good or is it good because the gods love it? And I'm now I'll put it in monotheistic terms, moving away from the gods of whom Socrates spoke in the ancient dialogue uh, in polytheistic Greece. Is a certain behavior, maybe action or inaction, is a certain behavior good because it's commanded by God? Or alternatively, does God command it because it is good? Now this second possibility, Does God command it because it is good? That second possibility has been criticized. And the criticism is a protest that this makes the God of Israel, who is supposed to be, by classical interpretations of all monotheistic faiths, supposed to be infallible and invulnerable, it makes God subject to some criterion that's independent of God my teacher, Rabbi David Weiss Halivni, wrote a brief essay on this subject entitled, Can a Religious Law Be Immoral? And in that essay, he expressed his extreme discomfort with characterizing any expression of the divine will as being ethically wanting. It it has to be ipso facto, if, if God has commanded it, it must be moral, it must be good. The late Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, even made the sweeping claim, listen to this, that Judaism has no euthyphro puzzle. Because as he put it, anything in the universe that stands behind a supposedly independent conception of good, you think there's an independent conception of good? Okay, but what what stands behind it? It has to be created by the one creating God who created everything. It can have no other source. And therefore, God and the good are are simultaneously intertwined. And therefore, the the puzzle of euthyphro is not resolved. It's dissolved. That's his claim. So in a few minutes, I'm going to return briefly to my teacher, Rabbi Halivni, and to Rabbi Sachs. But for now, I want to note that this second possibility that God commands it because it is good is hardly as radical as it appears. You need only consider the the well-known and often quoted story of Abraham arguing with God over the morality of holding the entire city of Sodom accountable for its miscreants. Surely, if there are some people there who are not wicked, they don't deserve to die. And here are Abraham's words, just to remind you. Far be it from you, he says to God, to do such a thing, to bring death upon the innocent as well as on the guilty, so that innocent and guilty fare alike. Far be it from you. The Hebrew there is chalilalach. Shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? You, want, you call yourself the judge of all the earth, you have to, you have to follow what is just and rather than lash back at abraham for his presumption in calling god to a moral accounting for god's plans god enters into the fairly famous negotiation with abraham about just how few it will take to save the entire city which is actually remarkable that that god is god is prompted to actually save the entire city if there is if there are ten people there, it turns out that they weren't. So he only saved the few who were who were not who were not wicked. So, having now seen not only a classical expression of the question of religious law and ethics in Plato. And the revealing episode of Abraham and Sodom. I want to turn now to what I think is a particularly crisp. In contemporary expression of a considered position on this subject that does reject the idea that the good causes God to command it and not the other way around. This comes, it's going to be our second text. It comes from what I would call a kind of a, a confession, um, in the classical sense of that term. You know, someone you know uh, revealing and admitting something about his life. It comes from a confession by the late rabbi Aharon Lichtenstein. He was the head of the Har Yeshiva in Gush And in it, he recalls how in his teenage years, certain biblical passages troubled him greatly because they seemed so clearly unethical. He specifically mentions the command to annihilate every last Amalekite indiscriminately. And this and other passages troubled the young Aaron Lichtenstein. But then he remembered something about the venerated Rabbi Chaim of Brisk into whose family he would eventually marry. It was said that women who gave birth to unwanted children, boy, this sounds a little topical, doesn't it? women who gave birth to unwanted children knew that they could leave those children at night on the doorstep of Rev Chaim's house and be secure in the knowledge that those children would be taken in and cared for. So with that as background, just take a look now at what Lichtenstein had to say about this. This is from a little essay called The Source of Faith is Faith Itself from almost 30 years ago. So here he says, at one point during my late teens, I was troubled by certain ethical questions concerning Amalek, the Amalekites and the command to annihilate them. Irehanidachat—that was a, a city that had become taken over by idolatry and was to be completely wiped out every indiscriminately men, women, children, all the property burned, everything. And I then recalled, so I was troubled by it, he says. Then I recalled having recently read that Rabbi Chaim Brisker would awaken nightly to see if someone hadn't placed a foundling at his doorstep. I knew that I slept quite soundly. I didn't get up at night to imagine what act of chesed I could do. And I concluded that if such a paragon of chesed as Chaim Abrisk, Brisk, if he was able to cope with these laws, evidently the source of my anxiety did not lie in my greater sensitivity but in my weaker faith. I couldn't be more sensitive than, than Chaim Abrisk, because look what he did, right? I slept soundly, not worrying about people who were you know, really in, in trouble in the world. He was constantly concerned about that, and yet he didn't have problems with Amalek, and Nirnidachet, et cetera. So it wasn't that I was more sensitive. It was that I had weaker faith, and so I set myself to enhancing it, to enhancing that faith. The idea is this, what makes ethical inferences valid is not that they are the products of sound human reasoning. I can't really trust my sensitivity. What makes them valid is because they've been transmitted to us by authoritative texts or teachers. And this is a form of what's called by the fancy word fideism. It's the doctrine that faith is far more the guarantor of ultimate truth than human reason can ever be. So here you have one way of resolving the so-called euthyphro puzzle. For Lichtenstein, the more religiously authentic way to resolve it is to bolster one's faith that the command of God is much more likely to be ethically sound than is any conclusion that we finite humans can come to on our own about what is right and just. Trust, faith, that will get you to the right ethical result. That's what we're being presented with uh, in, by Lichtenstein. Now, an almost exact contemporary of Rabbi Lichtenstein, uh, he was uh, both born and died two years earlier on each end, Um, and uh, notably also from the Orthodox camp, gave us a very different take. And I am talking about Rabbi David Hartman, um, the founder of the Institute under whose aegis we are gathering today. His uh, last published book was titled, The God Who Hates Lies. And it included the passage that we are going to look at next. So we're going to go back to the screen share here and take a look at this somewhat longer passage from that book, *The God Who Hates Lies*. Okay, I'm, let me uh, let me read through this uh, rather quickly, but I'll I'll pause and slow down at the at the places that I think are truly uh, truly important. A perspective focused on God consciousness can act as a guiding framework for the evolution of halacha, functioning as an important corrective to the types of halachic decision making that tend to trigger moral conflict among many modern Jews. To continually ask the question, which God are we worshiping, is to introduce a critical catalyst for self-correction. It's to offer a way for individuals and communities to negotiate aspects of the tradition that they find problematic. Allowing personal subjectivity is a way of both deepening and critically evaluating one's religious practice. Here's an important sentence. Rather than searching for moral guidance within the legal precedents and exegetical maneuvering of the halachic library, as has sadly become the common default for a wide variety of halachic Jews, we must search for it in the image of God, our moral conscience desires to learn from and compels us to choose. Now he says an obvious and oft asked question is, doesn't the halachic system claim ultimate moral authority under its own self-legitimating jurisdiction? Something that we saw in Liechtenstein. Isn't it religiously incumbent that we should allow tradition to override our subjectivity? Um, Is there room, I'm skipping a couple of lines here, for this independent moral thinking within the halakhic system? Morality is of course one of the most central facets of any individual's value system, but even for those who might validate moral intuition generally as a factor, we immediately run into the question, who defines what is moral? My understanding of morality may be different from yours. How can I give weight to my moral critique of halakha if the moral claim is not self-evident, if other moral possibilities are available, if there's some room for doubt about the validity of my moral intuitions? Why should I allow my admittedly contingent, highly situated moral perspectives to override the eternal weight of Torah law? So he sets up that question. And then he says, very interestingly, this kind of criticism seems aimed to cultivate a sense of moral self-doubt to cast a permanent shadow on the certainty of my moral conviction. And it seems reasonable to ask what effect the neutralization or invalidation of personal conscience might have upon the development of the religious personality. If I begin to second guess my moral convictions, I am essentially placing a religious priority on self-negation. I'm using sacrificial imagery as my model for religious emulation. What kind of human being then stands in the service of God? A person who is drained of moral passion, having forcibly suppressed that part of him or herself. Morality has become external, a matter of following rules rather than becoming attuned to an internal voice. To deny that voice is to deny our human identity. I do not believe that the tradition itself demands this kind of sacrifice or portrays the sacrificial model as the only valid religious orientation." All right, now that was a, a lot, a lot, of a mouthful. So I want to, you to notice several things here. One is Hartman's explicit appeal to the question of who defines what is moral. That is, is it the halakha? or is there access to moral reasoning and conclusions outside of religious law? Essentially the euthyphro puzzle. Second, Hartman also posits that fallibility, which we all have as human beings, does not disqualify us from claiming moral insight and even critiquing time-honored norms on the basis of that insight. And this I point out to you is consistent with everything that Hartman had written for decades. inasmuch as as he tenaciously upheld the religiously critical value of what was for him the religiously critical value of human participation in the covenant with God. We were not meant to be passive recipients of commands that we are enjoined to do or die. And then, crucially, there was that statement that I highlighted for you in the first paragraph, the implications of which are going to loom large for us as we go forward this morning. Here is that sentence again. Rather than searching for moral guidance within the legal precedents and exegetical maneuvering of the halachic library, as has sadly become the common default for a wide variety of halachic Jews, We must search for it in the image of God, our moral conscience desires to learn from and compels us to choose. The import of that long sentence is that we do not need to trust that everything that has come down to us in the halachic literature is in fact, the will of God. That's a sad default in Hartman's words to simply say it's in the halachic literature, ergo it is God's will. And it's sad because it demotes the God-given human ability to reason morally. That's what he means when he talks about the God that we worship, the God we want to learn from, the God that we can worship. That God may not always be evident in the halacha as it has been developed by even the most well-intentioned and pious Jews of bygone eras, is what is moving Hartman to write these words. Now, Hartman did not explicitly extend this to what might be in the Torah itself, and not just in the halachic literature that developed out of it. That, of course, raises the issue to a somewhat higher voltage. Uh, is, can God not be found in the Torah itself? Could one imagine that the God we worship may not always be evident, even in an explicit command in the Torah concerning, for example, humans of a non-heterosexual orientation? Hartman, as I said, did not really answer that question here. But for Halivni and Sachs, to whom I promised I would return briefly, it was clearly not in play to say that. And that's why they considered the euthyphro question not resolved, but dissolved. That is, there is no question for Halivni and Sachs and others like them, and for Liechtenstein for that matter, because if God is the infallible source of everything, including all of the Torah's words, then the Torah can only be good and the good must be found in the Torah. So can we entertain the idea That the Torah itself may not be expressing adequately the will of God. So our next text, which comes from late antiquity, a collection of Midrashim on the book of Leviticus, Leviticus Rabbah, will come tantalizingly close to saying so. Again, a little background. This text is about something else that comes from the Torah Uh, The rules relating to mamzerut, a mamzer, mamzerim in the plural. Who are they? Those are people who have done nothing wrong other than to have been born from an adulterous or incestuous relationship that their parents entered into. The Torah itself stigmatizes such offspring and bars them from normal family life in the Jewish community. The Midrash is built on a verse in the book of Kohelet, the Midrash we're about to look at. The book of Kohelet known in English, not exactly English as Ecclesiastes. And the verse in the book of Kohelet in its context in the book is a typically cynical observation about all the corruption of power in the world. But in a classical Midrashic fashion, This passage from Leviticus Rabbah attributes to the verse an import that is far from its original context. Any uh, familiarity with Midrash, you'll recognize that that's what Midrashists do all the time. They take a verse out of its original context and bring it into another. Here we go with this um, passage from Leviticus Rabbah. It begins and all of, the, all of the quotes from Ecclesiastes are in bold here. So you can see what, what is being quoted and what is being said by the Midrash. So here's the whole verse. I further observed all those who were being oppressed under the sun, the tears of the oppressed with none to comfort them and the power of their oppressors with none to comfort them. As I said, a typically cynical uh, statement about the, the kinds of corruption and the use of power in the world. Now the Midrash begins. Hanina the tailor, in some versions of his text, Daniel the tailor, but that's of little moment, interpreted this verse as applying to Mamzerim. Now it's very clear that the Gother of Kohelet was not referring to Mamzerim, but the Midrash is now applying it to that. So now it's going to take it phrase by phrase. I further observed all those who were being oppressed. These are the mamzerim, they're oppressed. The tears of the oppressed, what are they crying about? Well, the mothers of these people committed sins and we isolate them? Here's a man whose father committed adultery, but what did he himself do? And what business is it of his? Why is he suffering? With none to comfort them, but rather, the power of their oppressors. Now get this, this refers to Israel's great Sanhedrin, which imposes on them the full power of the Torah and isolates them on the basis of the verse, no one misbegotten shall be admitted into the congregation of the Lord. I don't know how many times you have seen a rabbinic text that, identifies oppressors with the great Sanhedrin. But this one does. And then with none to comfort them, God therefore says, it must be my task to bring them comfort. For it's only in this world that they are deemed to be expendable. But in a future world, it will be as Zachariah the prophet envisioned, I see a lampstand, all of gold. All will be sh- shining and glittering, and there will be no, no oppression." Uh, a rather remarkable uh, statement from um, a 1500 or so year old Midrash. Among the many very striking things, I think, in this subversive text are these. one. The clear depiction of the injustice that is inherent in people being made to suffer things that they cannot for suffer things that they cannot control. Number two, the identification of the Great Sanhedrin, the very embodiment of halachic authority, as the oppressor of the mamzerim. And third, that God is not on the side of the narrow halakha of the Sanhedrin. But rather, God envisions a broader sense of commandment and community that will include the mamzerim in a future world, as it puts it, Lavo. Now, one has the sense in reading this text that, um, well, let me, before before I say that, let me let me remind you that, you know, ancient texts uh, do not generally have punctuation or stage directions or anything or tell you with what inflection to read the, the words or even sometimes how to parse them. When God says in this text, it, it, it must be my task to do that, is God saying, it must be my task to do that? Or is God saying, Oh, it must be my task to do that. Very, very different valence. And so I definitely have the sense in reading this text that God is kind of playing the role of an exasperated parent saying something like this to a child. Okay, you have failed to clean up this mess in your room. I suppose I'll have to do it myself. When the parent says that, the intent is not to absolve absolve the child of responsibility and really do it for the child later on in the day. It's precisely to get the child to realize that the responsibility is ultimately hers. And in effect to shame her into doing what she should have done in the first place. So to read the text that way, which to me is the natural way to read it, is to say, when God says, it it, it is a way of of trying to shame the religious authorities into into realizing that they have been oppressive, and they've been oppressive somehow in God's name, and God is not pleased with that. And it's worth a few moments to consider what an important figure in our own conservative movement had to say in this very vein about another case in which the received halacha victimized an innocent person. Uh, Here, we're not gonna be focused on the mamzer, but rather on the aguna, a wife who was abandoned without a get from her now absent husband who was unable, according to the received halacha, ever to remarry. So this was addressed by the late Rabbi David Aronson in 1951. And the next very brief text uh, contains the kernel of insight about religious law and ethics from which Rabbi Aronson proceeded in this paper that was uh, known as Kadat Moshevi Israel. Let me put this up, and you'll see what he says. There were strict judges in Talmudic days who argued, let the law pierce the mountain. The law must have its way. The law is always right. The law has to override everything. Even mountains of intuitions that I have, that it's not right, the law still has to have its way. Let the law take its course, no matter how rigid and harsh it may be in any particular case. But none of the master builders of the halakha ever maintained Yikov hadina tatzedek, let the law destroy justice. If alive today, and this is all uh, hypothesis, of course, and it's all projection, but it's, I, I bring it to you to show the, 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 the deep um, intuition about what what religious law worthy of its name has to answer to in the same way that Hartman many so decades later, I uh, wrote the things that we've already looked at. If alive today, those sages of Talmudic times, if we may take their reaction to the problems of their day as criteria, would, none of them would smugly accept the situation where it's not the mountains, but the very heart of the authority of the halakha that is being pierced. Because the authority of the halakha depends on its being seen as right and just. How many times have you heard from people who have rejected the Jewish tradition that they see so many precepts that are resulting in in the victimization of people? And for them, it means that there is, there is something something wrong with the whole system. So it's the very heart of the authority of halacha that is being threatened and being pierced uh, by that, uh, by that uh, point of view. Uh, So for good measure, um, I want to uh, give you also an observation from Immanuel Kant, um, because um, it's just interesting to know that it constitutes the inscription on his tombstone, uh, which is near the cathedral in what is known today as Kaliningrad, which was the former Prussian city of Königsberg, uh, where, where Kant lived. Um, and, uh, this is, this is what is on his tombstone. Two things fill the mind with ever new and increasing admiration and reverence. The more often and more steadily one reflects on them. And here are the two things, the starry heavens above me and the moral law within me. And what's noteworthy here is the deep sense that it's expressing of the human mind's access to a moral law that is independent of the authority of tradition, because that's the force of the words within me. The starring heavens above me are something external to me, and that's a source of some kind of wonder. But he's also saying there is something within me that produces a, a, a perception of a moral law, and that too is a cause for wonder is a moral law independent of the authority of tradition. And one can only hope that tradition will embody it in the same way that we deeply feel it. So I want to proceed now to uh, to part three. And you know what? Maybe I wasn't sure that we would have time. Would It might be useful to, to take just a few questions. I, I'm gonna make sure that we we are on our way again in five minutes. Um, and uh, I, I hope that you won't consider me overly ruthless or, or God forbid as an oppressor um, in doing that. Um, it's to, to make sure that we get through the material. But if there are some questions that have accumulated perhaps in the chat uh, that I haven't seen, um, we can take up to five minutes now um, to entertain them.
2: Wes, Gordon, Wes has a question. Okay. And his question is, Wes, you
0: can ask it. Yeah, Gordon, um, what's the context for this lecture? What are the issues? In the 90s, I would have understood the, this is about gay marriage. Or in the 70s, I might have understood this about can women have an equal place? Or at any time before we figured out the Aguna problem, I could have understood we have to deal with women who are stuck in horrible marriages and their husbands won't let them out. Those are all you know, women's equality, you know, gay marriage, same-sex marriage, uh, dealing with the those are moral issues that where Judaism's halakha needed to get reformed uh, by our movement's rabbis. What are the issues today where this surfaces?
1: Okay, um, so we're, we are dealing with um, um, a lot of issues that uh, have to do with uh, personal autonomy There are still many, many um, unresolved um, end-of-life issues that, uh, in in which uh, uh, some sometimes this uh, more wooden halachic reasoning um, is brought to bear in ways that uh, that create a um, a great deal of heartache and hardship. Um, I don't know exactly where some of the um, some of the issues relating to you know, uh, uh, extensions of, um, of uh, artificial intelligence autonomous weapons uh, and things like that are going to go and what halachic arguments may be brought to bear either to justify them or were taken us in another direction. We don't know exactly what they are. We do know that there are, um, there, there are many things that are challenging uh, our society today. There is assault on truth um, from both from people who uh, are conditioned to believe that uh, their tradition gives them an, an you know a, a lock on truth and a monopoly on it and a basis on which to claim that uh, they have the, the sole possession of truth. We have people who deny the possibility of truth altogether. Um, these are um, these are things that we're going to have to resolve, and the idea that the entirety of truth, can be uh, found in uh, one particular tradition and one particular interpretation of tradition is also part a species of what we're talking about here. Um, even if even if there were no particular issues on the uh, on the agenda right now, um, this is um, this is an orientation that we have to uh, that we have to get straight for ourselves as to what, uh, what we're going, what we're going to hold accountable uh, to a moral sense, and what we're going to trust um, as um, as a moral sense that has some standing, and it's and it's never really going to be um, uh, useful or or really helpful to uh, invest that in the intuition of any particular individual, but communities can come up with collective intuitions that may challenge some of the received traditions that uh, that have come down to them.
2: There's another question from Joyce and Michael Bonin that says, isn't the Midrash suggesting that the Sanhedrin misapplied the verse from the Torah?
1: Um, it might be um but it doesn't say what that misapplication is right that is the 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 verse in the torah now it it may be that you you might say that the um that the um uh, the midrash is suggesting that mamzer in the torah does not mean what the sanhedrin thought it meant but if so they would have said that right and we don't have any any evidence um uh, in well, we do we do have uh, a, a recorded difference of opinion on what what kind of infraction the parents had to have made for, to create a mamsayr, but no one disagrees that it is an infraction of the parents that produces this misbegotten status. Um, so I I it does it is not plausible to me to imagine that the author of Ayikur Rabba Particularly since it's not uh, not ever spelled out, thinks that the, they don't get what a mamzer is. Uh, they do get what a mamzer is, um, and the Torah has made you know, if, as far as they're concerned, has made it clear that this is uh, someone who is the the product of sinfulness by the parents, um, and uh, nevertheless, um, they are they are being. They are being told that the this is resulting in a kind of oppression and that God is going to intervene. Um, you know this that's why I said it's a um, it it gets perilously close. I, I don't know if you want to use the word perilously, but it gets it gets remarkably close to to saying that uh, the Torah is not exactly expressing what, what God truly wants. Um, and uh, the Sanhedrin should, uh, should not have been following it woodenly. Uh, I understand that there is some, there's some room for, um, uh, for interpreting this, uh, this text in different ways. Um, I think I am, I am giving you what, um, what seems to me the most compelling read of it. Obviously people read it differently otherwise we all be on the same page on this, and we're not. Okay, uh, I think that's been six minutes now, so I'm I'm going to uh, I'm going to continue. I want to proceed now to what is uh, essentially part three, in which we're going to see some powerful elaborations of Hartman's idea that even if religious law and ethics will always be vulnerable to the euthyphro challenge, God and ethics can indeed be brought together. And there are many things that could be looked at here, but I'm gonna give you three examples. One of them is going to come from an ancient rabbinic midrash, known as the Sifre, in this case, the Sifre on the book of Numbers. The second is going to come from an important religious thinker who was really non-halachic, and that's Martin Buber. And the third is going to come from an Orthodox Israeli woman, a woman who uh, happens to enjoy standing to argue in the rabbinic courts in Israel, uh, generally on behalf of women's rights. Um, uh, And uh, she also writes uh, modern Midrashim, uh, her name is Rivka Lubich, um, and she is um, actually some people will surely recognize this name. She was the daughter of the late um, uh, Charles Liebman, a sociologist who um, uh, had much to uh, say about the uh, modern contemporary Jewish scene, in particular about conservative movement as well. So um, we're gonna we're gonna take start, uh, to look at these um, at these three texts. Um, Here is the one from the Sifre. Um, It relates to the daughters of Tzlofchad. So this is a a, um, vignette that comes up in the 27th chapter of the Book of Numbers. What has just happened is in chapter 26, there was a very comprehensive census. There had been a census in the second year after the Exodus. Now there's another census in the 40th year. And the need for the census in the 40th year was in large part, to determine how the land was going to be divided up um, when it was finally entered and the conquest was, um, was achieved. How is it going to be divided up among the tribes and among the clans within the tribes? Um, and all of the names that you see in that, in that list um, are men. Um, and there is one note that Slavchad, who came from the tribe of Manasseh, um had no had no sons uh, it simply says that and it says nothing uh, other than giving the names of the daughters it says nothing about their status or their standing so that's the background for this midrash the daughters of Tzlafchat came forward that's the the quote from the book of numbers and now the midrash says what what happened what brought them forward and here's what they imagine Once the daughters of Tzlavchad heard that the land was being divided among tribes, but to males and not to females, they got together to seek each other's counsel, right? The five sisters get together and have their own little caucus. They said to one another, God's mercy is not like the mercy of human beings. For human beings have more compassion for males than for females. But the holy and blessed one is not like that. God's compassion extends to both males and females. God's compassion extends to everyone. As it is written, the Lord is good to all. His mercy is upon all his works. Uh, That you will surely recognize. Psalm 145 is the core of the the prayer that we know as Ashrei. Um, and this is the, uh, the, the, the line uh, that belongs to the letter Tet. Tov Adonai l'akol I should just say as an aside, um, it's, very, it's, it's very lovely when we generally bring young members of the congregation up to, uh, to read Ashrei before we put the Torah back on Shabbat morning, but we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that these are not kids' verses. These are really important weighty verses particularly this one, as you see how it's used in this Midrash. Uh, What uh, the Sifre text here, I think, is really beautiful in its simplicity, because what it suggests is that the way in which religious law is handled is always going to bear the prejudices and the ethical blind spots of human culture human beings have more compassion for males than for females. Human beings have created patriarchal societies. Obviously, they're going to be more solicitous of males than for females, but I cannot believe, say, the the daughters of Tzalavchad, that the holy and blessed one can be like that because God, you know, this great anachronism here that the, you know, they're quoting the Psalms, um, but that's typical in Midrash, um, that God is, God is good to all. God's mercy is upon all of God's works. So the fact that human societies have created these hierarchies that uh, that put certain people at a disadvantage is not evidence that that's God's will. We know that God's will must be to be kind to and merciful to everyone that was created by God. So that's the beautiful simplicity of this. Uh, we we can't attribute to God the foibles and the blind spots of fallible human beings. We have to recognize that human societies are going to always have those prejudices and those blind spots. So that's that's an ancient text um, that uh, that makes this clear. Now, uh, the next text, as I said, is from Martin Buber, um, which is a really, uh, very, um, very strong statement. It's going to get to the heart of the theological problem by focusing not only on how religious law is handled, but on how far even prophecy can be trusted. How much can we trust the prophets who speak in God's name to convey the pure will of God? So this is from. Um, An article that um, appeared in Commentary in 1962. It was uh, reprinted in a a volume called The Philosophy of Martin Buber uh, a few years later uh, in a section called Autobiographical Fragments. And this uh, this is now in Buber's voice. We came to speak of that section of the book of Samuel. He's talking about another Jew that he met on a journey, um, who is a very devout and very observant Jew. And they came, they, they were speaking about biblical matters. They came to speak about the book of Samuel, in which it's told how Samuel delivered to King Saul the message that his dynastic rule would be taken from him because he had spared the life of the conquered ruler of the Amalekites, who was already in custody and was no threat anymore. And I reported to my partner in dialogue, Buber says, how dreadful it had already been to me when I was a boy. You hear a little bit of Lichtenstein here, things that bothered him when he was young, how much it bothered me to read this as a message of God. <clears throat> and my heart compelled me to read it over again, or at least to think about the fact that this stood written in the Bible. What am I to make of this? this, this um, the, that the prophet Samuel says it's God's will that this man has to die and then does it himself. The prophet Samuel does it himself and says, Saul is now rejected for being too compassionate at that moment. I, I told him how already at that time it horrified me to read or to remember how the heathen king went up to the prophet with the words on his lips, surely the bitterness of death is past," as the book describes. And he was then hewn to pieces by, by him, by Samuel the prophet. And I said to my partner, I have never been able to believe that this is a message of God. I do not believe it. So with wrinkled forehead and contracted brows, you have to sense the kind of the, the tension in the face of the man he is talking to. The man sat opposite me and his glance flamed into my eyes. He's clearly very deeply bothered or even offended by what Buber just said. He remained silent, he began to speak, he became silent again. He doesn't know what to say. And finally he says, So you do not believe it? No, I answered. Well, what do you believe then? I believe, I replied without reflecting, just instinctively, I believe that Samuel has misunderstood God. And he, again slowly, but more softly than before, said, so you believe that? And I said, yes. Now listen to this, but now something happened. The angry countenance opposite me became transformed. As if a hand had passed over it, soothing it, it lightened, cleared, was now turned toward me, bright and clear. Well said, the man, with a positively gentle, tender clarity. I think so too. Now let's just stop here for a moment uh, and try to try to get what what Buber is describing here. It uh, the the tension in the face, the wrinkled forehead, the constricted muscles in the face have now relaxed. That's the power of what's being described here, because the stress that was created, the stress that all of us can carry with us as believing Jews when we come across passages, even in the Torah, even in the prophets, that strike us as they struck Aaron Lichtenstein, as us as impossible to believe that this is what God wants. That creates a stress of having to harmonize faith in God with a harsh pronouncement of a sacred text. That tension and that stress is completely eased and resolved by remembering that humans, even prophets or great sages, can be mistaken in what they believe about God. God is gotten off the hook, so to speak, and it's the hook that's created by the interpretations of fallible humans. So in a way, to get back to to, um, Michael Bonin's question, um, maybe that is what what one can read into the uh, Vayikra Rabbah, Leviticus Rabbah, that uh, the criticism was that um, that the Sanhedrin was just misunderstanding God, and that there was uh, that isn't what scripture really intended or or that or you can go further and say as moderns that scripture was misunderstanding God, not available to the ancients for whom scripture was actually written by God, but at least there you could say that God is being misunderstood. That's what get God gets God off the hook and what relaxed the facial muscles of his interlocutor. And then Buber ends it by saying, there is, after all, nothing astonishing. What he means is there should be nothing astonishing in the fact that this kind of observant Jew, when he has to choose between God and the Bible, chooses God. And here you're going to hear Hartman now, the God in whom he believes, the God in whom he can believe, And always when I have to translate or to interpret a biblical text, I do so with fear and trembling in an inescapable tension between the word of God and the words of man. I'm trying to hear the word of God. That's important to me, that's sacred to me. And sometimes there's a tension between that and the words of human beings that have put that, uh, attempted to put that divine will uh, into words. There's always that tension, but there's nothing astonishing in in the fact, there should be nothing uh, scandalous about the fact that an observant Jew uh, with that tension will try to choose the God in whom he can believe. So the last thing I wanna do is turn to this remarkable Midrash uh, that I mentioned by Rivka Lubitsch. And in this, a precept that is actually in the Torah is put under the ethical microscope, and it's the it's uh, it's the precept about the about the mamzer. So this is uh, this appears under in a section called Midrashim Mamzerim. Midrashim about mamzerim. It's in a Dirshuni uh, volume two. It's Midrashim Nashim, It's Midrashim that were written modern Midrashim, contemporary ones written by women about women. And here's what Rivka writes. There are five who weep over Mamzerim and those tears make their way to God's throne of glory. And here are the five. The Mamzer whose status is known to all. The Mamzer who alone is aware of his Mamzerut. The woman who knows that her child is a Mamzer because she knows what illicit relationship she had. The father who cannot make himself known to his child as his father without revealing a status that the child does not know. And then there is the woman who aborted her fetus because she knew it would be a mamzer. By the way, in her work in the rabbinic court, she has met all of these people. And she says those tears make their way to God's throne. And some add a sixth who weeps as well. And it's that very fetus that was never born who cries out each day and says, mommy, mommy, why did you not give birth to me? Tanot, this is someone she imagines as the spirit of Jephthah's daughter. You remember that terrible uh, story in the book of Judges. Uh, Jephthah was his general who said, if I get victory, I'll sacrifice the first thing that I meet when I come back. Uh, and he meets his daughter, Um, the imagined spirit of Jephthah's daughter who lost her life because of her father's blind insistence on fulfilling a rash and ill-conceived vow, Tanot was asked this question, what does God do when a mamzer is born and the community brands him or her for life, and for subsequent generations as such? How does God react to this when he sees the law of mamzerut being enacted in the community? And she answered as follows: At such moments, God cries out with a loud wailing. These things you are doing in my name never entered my mind; they never entered my mind. And in chapter nineteen of Jeremiah, God uses these exact words: Lo, Alta Ali be didn't enter my mind to denounce religious piety that entails the sacrificing of children. And here what what gavriel lubich says is that uh, that god is saying about the law of mamzeirut these are things you are doing in my name but they never entered my mind to victimize innocent people in this way just as i refused on abraham's prompting not to victimize innocent people in the city of sodom it is not who I am, and this is, uh, I think, an an especially uh, an especially powerful statement, particularly given the uh, person it is coming from, and her standing in the community, um, and um, and reflects a an intuition about uh, what we have to do when uh, when religious law and ethics seem to collide. Who wins, and um, It, you know, just an answer again to the question of, you know, what's the context today? um, We shouldn't imagine that all of the issues about even about women and about uh, LGBT um, um, people, and uh, especially, you know, the the rabbinical school at JTS, we have, uh, you know, a a, a number of uh, of trans students. we don't know what they're gonna find out in the community. They are remarkable students. They have enormous religious sensitivity and a thirst for learning and obviously have enormous self-awareness which can, you know, results in a, a, a sensitivity and an awareness of, uh, of everyone else as well. Um, these issues are not entirely resolved. Um, and is, there's no question that, um, that halachic texts may be brought to bear uh, in ways that will, that will disadvantage them. Um, and that may victimize them. Um, so there are, and and the uh, the egalitarian issues are not even to this day entirely resolved. With thank God, way ahead of where we were. Um, but uh, this context of religious law and ethics colliding, I think, is never going to be entirely behind us. And we have to get our um, our, our thinking straight as to uh, what is the um, with the religiously conscientious way to approach this. Uh, so that's what I hoped to bring to your attention today. And we do have some, about almost 10 minutes uh, uh, left for us to, uh, to take some more questions or comments.
0: Wes, go ahead. First of all, Gordon, thank you so much. That is just, you are just so fabulous. And I just, first of all, on behalf of the, you know, 130 people, 20 people who were on this call, Want to thank you for your erudition, your sensitivity. No one else, literally no one else on planet Earth brings together all the kinds of sources and the genres of sources that you bring together and just move between and among so nimbly uh, and fluidly. So a deep thank you for your fabulous uh, teaching. I want to get straight to, to work though. What, like what's the nimshaw? What's the nafkamina? What's the consequence of your teaching? So um, let me just quote God. Thus said the Lord of hosts, now go attack Amalek and prescribe all that belongs to them. Spare no one, but kill alike men and women, infants and suckling, oxen and sheep, camels and asses. Uh, you know, women, infants and sucklings. So, when you were the rabbi in White Plains, uh, and it's a Shabbos morning and it's Shabbat Zachor, could you tell us how you thought about this issue? where do you have your bat mitzvah, bar mitzvah, or any person chant as a haftarah, what is no mistake about it, genocide in the the mouth of God? How do you think about that?
1: Well, I think for many years, I have uh, pretty much thought about it in these uh, kind of Buberian terms. I'm not a Buberian in the sense that he did not really believe in a halachic Judaism. But uh, in terms of what he is willing to accept as a uh, an authentic expression of the will of God, um, to me it's a um, it, it's a um, it, you know an offense to God to suggest that uh, that God would want to uh, commit have us commit genocide. So I did don't, you ditch that Haftar? Did you ditch that Haftar and find something else? No, I do not ditch Haftarot. I don't ditch, I don't ditch Leviticus 18 or Leviticus 20. I don't ditch, for example, I'll tell you what my red line is. I am willing to ditch things where actual people are being offended or hurt right now, right? Which is why I don't thank God for not making me a woman. Uh, because it's going to immediately offend and have an effect on on 50% of the population. Uh, But to say in the Amida, for example, on the festivals, we were exiled from the land because of our sins, which has the implication that every catastrophe that happens to us is because of our sins, including the Shoah. I don't believe that for a second, but I don't take it out of the prayers because I think to sweep it under the rug... Is to imagine that somehow this is never this is an issue that never comes up. Um, the the better thing to do is to read that haftarah and to and to speak to the congregation and to speak to the bar about mitzvah and have them speak to the congregation uh, in ways that will that will struggle with it and and indicate that this is this is something that. Um, is is in our history and our literature, and this is this is the problem, the moral problem that it creates and uh, and why we are um, we are bound to keep struggling with this and uh, and move beyond it. One of the things we have as an advantage in our movement, uh, and i and I have a great deal of sympathy in a way for a, a lot of my orthodox colleagues who don't generally have the option of saying, well, I don't believe that God is the author of every word in Leviticus, right? We are able to say that and therefore to say that the author of Leviticus did the best that that author could do, but wasn't really expressing the divine will uh, uh, properly. It's much harder to do that if you, uh, if you can't get beyond the idea that God has written every word there. And that, that creates a, a much more agonizing struggle
0: just a quick follow up and then I'll stop. But uh, Gordon, to apply the Gordon Tucker rule, is this text going to hurt some person who's in shul that day? What about uh, the Leviticus 18 Toivahi? It's an abomination. Gay is an abomination if you happen to be gay.
1: Um, well, reading, because reading from the Torah is, a, uh, is an invitation to midrash, is an invitation to homily, and therefore it, it has to be addressed. Um, and and I did address it, um, you know, on uh, on Parshiot uh, kedoshim. Kadoshim. Um, this saying a brachan in the sidur at the beginning is not generally an invitation to interpretation. It's just kind of, it's you know, it, it's blessing God and thanking. You're actually thanking God. You're not you're not reading something that uh, that God said. So I think there is uh, maybe you consider it a subtle difference, but to me it's. Um, It's an important difference, not to mention the fact that um, scripture has to be dealt with even when it's being criticized in in an integral way. You can't simply dice it up because so many parts of scripture refer to some other parts of scripture. Uh, So I think that's another issue. Thank you, Gordon.
2: So Gordon, I know we're running a little late, but um, a couple of questions have come up in the chat that I don't want to skip over. Sure. Um, I'm just going to give them to you. you answer as you'd like. The first is what if one believes that the Torah was written by men, so it's as likely to be wrong about what is moral and right as my own interpretation. That's one. Two, is it also possible that what seems so terribly unethical to us is actually correct as God sees it? And then the and then the third one. Oops, the third one is how does halacha deal with issues when there isn't moral consensus?
1: Okay, so um, well, let me let me start with that um, that second one. Just say it again. What that second one was the. Um,
2: the second question was from Steve Lesser. Isn't it also possible that what seems so terribly unethical yes. to us is actually correct as God sees it?
1: Yes. Um, so of course that is possible. Uh, but here I take you back to what Hartman said, which is, if if that becomes the base, if, if that becomes our our lodestone, that uh, we cannot trust. Our, ourselves, then we are going to be, as he put it, kind of diminishing our humanity. We're going to, if, if we are asked to live this kind of sacrificial life, which is no matter what I think, no matter what i feel no matter how strongly i uh, i feel about it if it seems to contradict scripture uh, i have to consider the possibility that scripture may be right and i may be wrong of course that's a possibility but to live that way is constantly to be a, a passive recipient of things and to and to lose the to lose the muscle tone of making moral judgments by by simply outsourcing it to scripture I know that's a funny way to put it, but that's I, I think what Hartman was uh, was really talking about, and as I said, consistent with everything he had always written about the dignity of the of you know of the human um, uh, of the human mind and the human heart in in grasping these things um, as best it can. And there's always the risk that you'll be wrong, but look, there's a risk that scripture is wrong as well. Um, so that's really quite important. Um, the first question, I think, is um, is, is really kind of answered um, by itself. That yes, uh, if we can't, we can't always trust ourselves, but we can't uh, completely trust scripture either. If it was written by human beings, um, and look, the whole idea of scripture being written by human beings is a whole other subject for it. You know, that would take a whole other session. Um, um, I, I think that there are very strong arguments to be made against those who would say that, um, that scripture being written by human beings somehow vitiates all of the authority of scripture. Um, by the way, the US Constitution um, by general acclaim was written by human beings. It, it exerts an enormous amount of authority in our lives as it should. Um, um, authority is not dependent on something coming from um, f- from the the, the mouth of God, as it were, The authority comes from the conscientiousness in, in trying to uh, trying to um, uh, grasp what the will of God must be. Um, and to do that conscientiously in, in a community and to, and to be updating it uh, in ways that will get you closer to it, that's what gives it authority. Um, I forgot what that third one was.
2: The third one was, sorry, about Halacha, what if it's wrong? I think it was the question. How does Halacha deal with issues where there isn't moral no. consensus?
1: Well, I mean, Halacha is going to deal with issues according to you know, its own um its its own rules and its own, you know, rules of of inference, so to speak. How do you how do you apply um things from uh from bygone eras that uh, didn't, you know, didn't imagine certain technological advances and certain cultural uh, changes, um, uh, halakha will, you know, will be, you know, will be processed and you know, by different people who are committed to halacha, uh, you know, according to their own lights. A a a law committee in the conservative movement is is clearly going to. Uh, uh, often come to different points of view about what halacha requires, uh, than will uh, you know, a bet in in, uh, in Borough Park in Brooklyn. Uh, it's not to say that one is right and one is wrong. They're just going to be different. What, what I think uh, is, becomes very problematic is when the kind of moral intuitions that a community holds, by the way, because of the tradition itself. I mean, the idea that innocent people shouldn't be suffering for sins that they didn't commit is the subject of an entire chapter in the book of Ezekiel. It is already talked about in the 24th chapter of Deuteronomy that people shouldn't be made to suffer, shouldn't be put to death for the sins of their parents. So the idea that the individual should be called to account for the individual's actions and not for a parents' actions is already in our tradition. So to to challenge the morality of a law that goes uh, counter to that is to challenge something from within the tradition itself. And when that kind of challenge is ruled out of court, then something has gone wrong with halachic process. Uh, And that's that's what Hartman was talking about when he said the sad default is that we we turn to the halachic rules as a substitute for, uh, for our moral judgment.
2: Thank thank you so much, Gordon. Um, We're running a little late, so I'm going to blast through my three very quick announcements. Beyond the thank you to to Gordon Tucker for being with us today, um, we have a few things coming up. This week, Raquel Corzine is starting a four-part intensive series on uh, Natan Alterman, and it is based in large part on new translations that our own Michael Bonin did for her. So if you can join us on Tuesday afternoon at two o'clock this week, and then three more Tuesdays after that, please do. Our next month, our next Sunday morning class with Hartman Scholar is with Lila Kajadin in January. And the third, third one is looking far ahead to this summer. If you have any interest in joining us In Jerusalem this summer for more great Hartman Torah, please be in touch with me. The theme has been announced for this summer, and it is aspirational Zionism, revitalizing a moral conversation about Israel. It promises to be interesting and controversial. And again, if you're interested, please uh, send me a note so we can get you some more information on that. And again, thank you all for joining us today. Sorry we ran a little late, and we will see you this week or next month or in Jerusalem. Thanks, Gordon.